Swamiji feels he's done sufficient explanation of the symbolism of the gods and the goddesses. I think when I was reflecting on, because it doesn't really come up again, even though you would think that the book would be a lot about that, he really only devotes a few chapters to it. I think what I was trying to just reflect, sometimes you look backwards after something's done and you can see the meaning of it. I think that those symbols were a requirement for Kali Yuga, basically. Because as, as, the, as Satya Yuga gave way to Dwapara, um, Tetrata gave way to Dwapara Yuga, and finally to Kali Yuga, um, the human mind's capacity to have a direct perception of higher truths became more and more diminished. And so it was necessary to preserve those truths in symbolic form that would give um, even relatively unenlightened people a, a direction in which to focus their attention. I, uh, because we live in the West, and our whole orientation, of course, our culture is just so... The, the difference in culture between uh, India and America, it's, the gap is closing now, but even 20 years ago when we first started visiting India was really astonishing. And there's a temple outside of uh, New Delhi. It's in an area called Chhatapur. It's a very large temple. And the um, sadhu who essentially created it was a very, was a low caste person who seemed to have some uh, spiritual power and he drew around him by the hundreds, by the thousands. Um, you know, the multitudes came to be his disciples. He wasn't so much a leader of the educated class, but he was definitely a leader of the uneducated class. It wasn't that he was exclusively that, but he really had the multitudes. And he built a number of temples on his property with the traditional deities. When you go and visit that place, it's like a whole campus full of different temples, including, for some of you may remember being there, that's gigantic, like, I don't know how many feet, three or four stories high, statue of Hanuman, where you, you know, sort of stand up next to his toe, and his toe is practically as big as your whole body. But one of the temples, and it's quite, a lot of it is quite nicely done, and we were in one of the temples just um, sort of sitting uh, on the front steps, and a group of people from one of the villages outside of town. Uh, in other words, people who lived a much more simple life, who I don't know if they were actually illiterate, but they certainly were not highly educated. It was obvious from looking at them that they didn't have that kind of skill. I'm, I don't, I'm not denigrating them, it's just clearly who they were, that intellectuality was not their strongest suit. And they were very excited to be there at that temple, and they went from uh, icon to icon, and there were all these bas-reliefs the, around this temple. And it was so obvious to me, because they would see some picture. Oh, here's Lakshmi doing this, and here's Shiva doing that, and here's Hanuman doing this. And each time, I couldn't speak their language, but I could pick up enough words to understand and from their gestures and their responses. They were so excited to see an artistic representation of stories that they knew really, really well. And they, they pointed out little details and they talked excitedly to each other about the things that they were seeing and then they were very excited to see the next one. It was almost like um, in this country, when, if you might see teenagers finding pop stars, you know, being really excited if there was a gathering in a restaurant running from one to the next. And it became intensely obvious to me all of a sudden how divinely enlightened um, the rishis were to have preserved these true understandings um, in these in these story um, goddess goddess gods and goddess form, 
because even those who didn't have any subtle understanding nonetheless had a focal point for their devotion and that devotion was very sincere and would uplift their energy and it's, it's not necessarily to be sophisticated to be spiritually deep so I'm not even going to say that they didn't have a deeper sense of devotion to some of those icons than some more highly educated person would have who had rejected them but the main thing is their purpose was obvious whereas when we find ourselves in the position that we are now which is Dwapar Yuga ascending and, and the cultures of East and West are beginning to meld, by no means should anyone on either side be disrespectful of these symbols because they are astonishingly deep and they do represent superconscious understandings. But at the same time, we don't necessarily need them if we, in fact, are able to generate that same kind of devotion without all that personification. And you see, that's the tricky line. Because so often, and the Swami writes about this at the beginning of this book, in the name of being more intellectually sophisticated and not wanting to deal with these things that we see as lesser and intellectualizing our concept of God to the point where it's just words and there's no relationship left, we actually become lukewarm devotees of devotees at all and we're, we're much better off having the sort of credulous uh, faith of a, uh, like a little child believing all these tales if that belief opens our heart to that transforming power. Because the, the end point of all of it is that we need to open our heart to that transforming power. And this first chapter that we're dealing with this evening about Avatara, the descent of spirit into material form is all about this evolutionary progression of individual awareness and the, the necessity he doesn't emphasize it so much in this chapter I think he will in, in the, what we'll read for next week a little bit more but the necessity to be in receptive relationship to a higher potential and that concept of being a devotee is just so fundamental to our spiritual progress and that's really what has what it has been and is destroying essentially the fabric of our society is that we we have we keep we've shut our hearts to a higher potential and in doing so we've just limited our, to ourselves to this material world which is um, which we can't control and so it, it now it's you know it begins to roll out of control and we don't have anything else um, to focus our our beliefs on I was remembering this morning an experience I had back in 1989 when I was uh, I had a very brief career as a corporate trainer was really totally out of my actual area of expertise having never worked in any of those environments but there was a brief period of time where I did a little bit of that work but it was a, a real uh, translation job for me because I'm I'm a devotee I'm a bhakti yogi and I really want to talk about loving God and everything else I can I can speak about it, but to me it all comes back down to that. But I worked out with this um, human HR director, you know, how I would uh, manage it. And I gave some, she knew where I was coming from, but she was anxious to bridge. Um, so I gave some leadership classes. And I was allowed to speak about energy and, you know, life force, things like that, but I absolutely not bring it into anything that sounded religious or spiritual because the company's just they can't go there no matter what the personal feelings of anybody are 
they're extremely hesitant to risk the ire of their various employees, rightly or wrongly, that's their point of view. And then in 1989, the, the earthquake happened here, that big one, where the bridge collapsed and the freeway smashed like that. And uh, one of the, the wife of one of the employees there was killed when the freeway crushed like that. So it was bad enough that his wife suddenly died, but it was worse that it happened in such a, you know, horrifying manner. So the HR director calls me because she basically said the whole company was just, there was just like this nervousness and anxiety just running through the whole company and she wanted to try to do something and hope that I could come and provide some point of calm understanding. And I naturally was eager to help. And so I said, yes, of course. But then I paused to think for a moment and I said, but I don't know how I can do this unless I can talk about God. She said, well, you don't have to talk about God. You just need to give people faith in something. Give them faith in themselves, she said like that. I said, the difficulty is that faith in yourself will only take you so far because the self that you're having faith in can't control earthquakes, doesn't know when people are going to die, can't stop them from dying. You know, there's no... I said, you have to have faith in something that can actually give back to you and give back to you on a level that transcends the limitations of this material plane. And really, we can torque the language as much as we want, but the word is God. And it's just a question of how we understand that word. So what we're, what we're working with, and at the same time, it's also true that you can talk about these things without ever having to use any vocabulary, because they're experiential. But what we're talking about here, and in this particular chapter, is the whole process of the fact that this experience of material life is going somewhere. And that's really what he's trying to say there. And it, it's so fundamental, and the fact that our society doesn't know that we're going anywhere has what's caused us to, to basically lose our bearings so completely. You know, um, the, the only evolution that our Western culture believes in is this Darwinian thought somehow that the animals are battling it out and the systems that work are the ones that endure. And it's a little obscure to us exactly why they're battling it out and nobody's actually been able to show you how that evolution takes place. But the whole concept is that somehow this mindless matter batters against itself and then creates a new beak or a new wing or something like that. But there's no understanding of that material reality being any kind of a, a deeper force. So Swamiji starts by explaining, you know, going back to Brahma, the creator, just talks about how the power of creation is manifested outward and that he, he speaks of the, the causal blueprint. He explains it in a very interesting way. He talks about the three levels of manifestation. There's the unmanifested spirit, which then develops the idea of what's going to be created. And that's the blueprint that's in the ether. And Swamiji makes a very interesting comment. He said, at that point, it's all very fluid because it's really just uh, an idea that's being manifest. And what's, what's even more interesting, and this becomes relevant because he's also telling us how to create. He says that you don't really have to think it out in detail because the means for manifesting it is energy. And energy has its own intelligence. 
It's, it's a very important and interesting phrase, and it's one I often think about. What are the phrases that you have to really understand? What are the concepts you have to understand to really get what's going on with Ananda? And one of them, a very interesting one, is that energy has its own intelligence. And this is a divine principle, that energy is not inert or unconscious. And so very often in the way that Ananda does things, which often seems a little bit confusing, someone wrote recently that they're, they're hoping to start a, a living wisdom school in London and they have somebody who may back him. And so he wanted us to send a copy of our business plan so that he could present it to this man. I wrote back and I said, you, you terribly misunderstand how we do things. You know, we never even dreamed of writing a business plan. It just isn't the way we manifest because of this principle. It first starts as an idea and that idea re needs to remain fluid because you need to see what the energy itself is going to do. And if you start too much by first defining how that energy is going to behave, you're going to limit the energy before it even has a chance to express itself. And a great deal of, of failure to manifest is because people are falsely taught that they need to pin down every detail before they even begin, and it never allows for that dynamic unfolding of energy. Um, Swami Kriyananda, in his book about leadership, had an interesting statement at one point. He said, this is slightly off, but also re relates. He said, there's a certain point in group dynamic when any action sort short of absolute folly is better than continued discussion. <laughs> because you, it, at a certain point, you just need to start applying energy and getting energy in motion, and then that energy will educate you as to what comes next. This is a little bit like people wanting to have all the answers before they take a step, but they don't have the in, intuitive clarity to have all the answers until they take a step. Because there's, the, the, the consciousness has to be refined by commitment and action. And then as the energy runs through, through commitment and action, then the intelligence of that flowing energy being in the flow of energy, which is one of the eight manifestations of God, you begin to get more in tune with the idea behind what you're doing. And then the manifestation of it becomes more obvious. Do you see? So with our schools... We are very clear, using that as an example, and actually with everything we've done, we've always been very clear on what I would call the essential vibration, which you might call the causal blueprint. There was no lack of clarity about the essential vibration, and there was no lack of commitment to put out whatever energy was required that was a manifestation of that vibration. But how specifically that vibration actually manifested on the material plane we, we always wait to see how the energy guides us. In other words, the way Swami puts it, what's trying to happen? You see? And it's a very, um, it's a big step upward from uh, the kind of manifesting that's commonly taught. You know, the next series after this one, I'm going to start in July, is going to be Swamiji's um, man, uh, materials. Uh, yeah, what is it called, though? Material success and happiness through yoga principles. That's what it's called. But it's a very subtle course because it really talks about manifestation from a much more elevated level than when people are just trying to push the energy around on the material plane. I'm not saying that nobody else has tuned into how to do it because self-evidently a lot of people have. But the higher the point from which you pick it up, obviously the more capacity you will have to bring 
into fruition whatever idea that you can express. So Swamiji then talks about how from the beginning with Brahma, this force of consciousness goes out and it goes through these progressive stages and the final last point is the material world that we see around us. And he says, interestingly, there's no further point than that. Because once it's taken material form, that's, that's the end point of this expression. There's nothing beyond it. Because that's enough. Because once those ideas and that energy have actually manifested in physical form, the goal of the whole exercise is accomplished. Which is individual soul, individual evolution of consciousness. So that each of us as manifested you know, fragments of that infinite whole, the material world brings the, the idea to a clear focus and is all we need in order to penetrate back to the source. And he, he writes about how most people, you know, the majority of people on the planet, just take the material world as the given and imagine it, as he puts it, to be self-defined. That somehow it just was created from somewhere and there it is. And don't ever stop to think, you know, what was the causative force behind it? Or if they do, you know, you get these, uh, uh, you know, really goofy, dogmatic, religious explanations of the seven days. And there's a, some kind of a theme, a biblical theme park in Texas. You may have read about it. I read about it in some magazine or newspaper. And it's, it's presented by people who have an extremely literal interpretation of the Bible. And, and those people have actually figured out that creation is 5,000 years old and 5,472 years old or whatever it is. I don't know that the, day, that the original day when God started, very, it's a very small number. And part of the difficulty with that number is that factors like dinosaurs don't fit in. So they've simply put the dinosaurs in. So they have this biblical theme park which is, a, is the Garden of Eden, but it includes dinosaurs. <laughs> just like, yeah, sure, once you just start out to say that this is how it's going to be, you just can make anything work. This is why Swamiji comments that religion is getting a bad name. And this is why people who are tuned in to a more expanded reality are embarrassed to identify themselves with um, ideas like that. And so all of religion is sort of falling into disrepute slightly among uh, the most dynamic, many of the most dynamic people on the planet. And that's what Yogananda is here to do and Kriyananda is here to do is to come around the side and rescue this. I heard Swami speak in speaking about something, uh, listening to a talk from a few years ago, and he, he, he mentioned something that he's never acted on, but he said, I would love to, draw, to tour the country and talk about Divine Mother. In other words, try to bring back an attractive concept of the divine that people can open their hearts to without being all caught up. In, in, in the end, he presented in the way of Ananda Sangi the concept of Satchitananda, which I think is uh, also a wonderful way to go. You know, ever-existing, ever-conscious, ever-new bliss, which is really the, the best way to present the idea of the divine because it's experiential, and at least in the West, it's free of any associations. It's something that we can move to. But you see, even those words immediately awaken in the heart a certain longing, doesn't it? You know? And I mean, I personally have great affection for Jesus' word, the comforter. 
when you think about the divine as the comforter, it, it, it just conjures up. And that's the divine mother because it, it, that all leads to a feminine concept of the divine, feminine in the sense because intimate and loving, unconditional and comforting. Isn't that what we long for? I mean, how, how often, if you really just come down to it, what you really want is you just want somebody to comfort you. Haven't you seen how little children run to their mothers? You know, and the mother, all the mother does is comfort. Now, th- that's an exact illustration of what Swamiji is talking about here. Existence on the material plane contains within it a clear expression of every, uh, of a symbol, a symbolic representation of everything that we need to know to turn the energy backwards and move out of this plane. And he said that's why even the angels envy the human beings. And the other factor that he just states as, a, as an unequivocal fact, which Yogananda also said, is once the human body is created, once, once physical evolution reaches the state of the human body, he said no further evolution is required because already contained within this nervous system is the capacity to experience infinity. That's why Jesus and Krishna and Yogananda could live in a human body and still have an infinite consciousness because the human nervous system is that refined. So again, he's, he's answering ideas that people have that somehow physical evolution is going to keep going. Yogana, uh, Yogananda has stated, Swami states in this book, that there's no requirement for greater physical evolution. What we need is to evolve our consciousness within the bodies that we have and actually make use of the full potential, which, of course, most people don't. I mean, it's a scientific fact of how little of our brain power we actually use, how little of our nervous system is actually awake. The way Swamiji puts it, we're not omnipresent even within our own body. You know, we're much more in our eyes than we're in any other part of it. And every single cell has conscious intelligence, but we don't really, very few of us can actually talk to those cells. If we actually could, we could do miracles. And that's how the masters do miracles, is they're omnipresent in every cell. So just as you can move your hand, you can rearrange that cell if you're actually present within it. And it's a potential that all of us have. Occasionally someone will flash into it, but mostly we have to work our way toward it. So then Swamiji begins to define, by means of the caste system, which is an extremely interesting reality, how this evolutionary process takes place and what is forward. You know, what does it mean to actually progress spiritually? And this is actually an extremely serious question because a, a, a lot of difficulty on the spiritual path is because we lack a clear concept of what it is that we're trying to do. And this is why the masters incarnate, um, because they give us this clear concept. And this is why in a previous chapter, Swamiji made such a point of the fact that the avatar is an actual individual just like us who lived through what we have lived through. And what he manifests is not a separate reality at all, but simply the fulfillment of the path we're on. You see, both the Jews and the Christians have really cut the ground out from underneath themselves. The Jews, because they've rejected the possibility of the divine personifying. You know, there's no saints in the Jewish religion. There's no images of people. Of course, they follow their rabbis with great devotion and they look upon the wise men with great reverence and respect. But this idea that divinity can be embodied in, in a human form has been rejected. You know, the Messiah was there, but he wasn't really the Messiah, so that's sort of that. We're sort of waiting. There's a dim theory that it might happen, but in fact, there's nothing to aspire to except greater in, in understanding. 
You can go for wisdom, but that wisdom does not lead to self-realization. It just leads to more and more wisdom. And in the Christian church, in their desperate effort to make Jesus as great and as glorious as they possibly could, they have also made him wholly other, is the theological phrase they use. He's wholly other than the rest of us. So the Christian can aspire for God to rescue you, and you can work to be worthy of being saved. But again, you're, you're not understanding that it's a progression. And now what Swamiji explains, by just talking about the caste system as it was originally intended, not as an instrument of social oppression, which is what it's become, but as a way of defining stages of human consciousness, then we can begin to see how we evolve. And all of it, and Swami talks at great length, it's all about developing our creative free will. And this is why Master was very much against too much government interference in life. Even though everyone was very enthusiastic about Roosevelt at the time, FDR at the time that he was president, Master thought he was a disaster for the country because he, he taught people to be dependent on the government and to choose that kind of security over the insecurity of personal initiative. And if you look at the whole direction of our society, our, our society has gone wild in terms of feeling that the government needs to intervene to keep the consequences of individuals' actions from rebounding upon themselves or society. Um, it, it's interesting when one of my friends, um, whereas in India, Swamiji was explaining, talking about Gandhi, it's all about your own um, personal integrity and the respect to allow others to have the same integrity. I think I mentioned here that when one of our friends who lives in India bought a car and went to get insurance, he, the, you only, in the system there, you only insure your own car. You're not responsible for anything else. You're just, you insure your own car, and everybody insures their own individual car. There's no attempt to make somebody else responsible for your destiny. You're just each responsible for your own destiny. It was sort of an interesting um, way to, I mean, you can see there's a thousand reasons why I would also have to be that way if, if an impoverished person could ram your car and have his car fixed, you know. <laughs> if they had, you could see what a, what a mess it would be. It's partly also just to protect them from that. But nonetheless, it's indicative of a certain attitude. So Swami defines this um, evolution of consciousness as a greater and greater capacity to stand on your own two feet, to use your own willpower, to initiate, and to creatively respond. And to see oneself not as an effect or a victim of any circumstance in life, but as, as the powerful force that moves and eventually that moves in harmony with the divine. And he talks about the first and lowest level of human evolution is what's known in the Indian system as the shudra, which is characterized by the peasant consciousness. But the, the, the basic personality of, of the shudra is that it shirks all kinds of self-effort and is seeking above all to find its satisfaction and its pleasure from putting out as little energy as possible. Now, the, the helpfulness about understanding these qualities is that we can also see no one is a pure example of any one state of consciousness. And all of us at all times carry within us a spectrum. And if we can begin to understand sort of what aspect of, of consciousness we're manifesting at any particular time, it helps us to understand both where we are and where we're trying to go, and to a certain extent, how to get there. It also is an extremely useful um, way of understanding human nature, 
So the extent to which we either have to lead others or teach others or parent others in any way, if we can sort of see how people gradually come to certain levels of understanding and appreciate that if they're not beyond that level of understanding, there's absolutely nothing you can do to get them there. In the Bhagavad Gita, except wait, in the Bhagavad Gita, it describes different kinds of karma. And it talks about the karma that is like smoke obscuring a fire with just a little puff will blow the smoke away and the light of the fire will be revealed. And then there's karma that's like rust on a silver mirror or on a metal mirror. And you have to work hard, but you can, with a little bit of effort, you can remove it and the rust will be gone and the clarity of the mirror will be there. And then the third kind of karma is like the baby in the womb. And there's nothing you can do no amount of self-effort will hasten that process. The, the baby will stay in the womb until it is ready to be born. And so with our own gradual evolution of consciousness and in our relationships to other people, it may be crystal clear to you. But unless that person is right on the cusp of grasping a new definition of where their happiness comes from, because that's really what it's all about. It's all about... How do we define what, uh, the source of our happiness? How do we feel that we can avoid suffering? And the, the lowest level of human consciousness seeks to find happiness by going into uh, a state, as close to a state of unconsciousness as possible and to put out as little energy as possible and considers that to be pleasurable. And as Swami describes, such people have to be constantly supervised because left alone even for a moment, it won't occur to them to be eager to work. And if you have individuals in your life, or if you're that kind of person, you know, if you have a shudra tendency about work, you really don't want to set up a home office and never have anyone around you. Because the, the, the shudra inclination in you will, will cause you to think that your happiness will come in, in not putting out energy, instead of in putting out energy. And, and what uh, he, he describes also in another place is, such people respond to the threat of punishment and really very little else. Which is also just an interesting fact that there are, there's a place in which you have to motivate people according to what they will be motivated by. That's why universal laws of parenting or even teaching don't always work. Because if you're dealing with the shudra, you, you can't just give them a project and send them off on their own initiative. And you have to set up consequences for their behavior and you have to supervise them. Swami describes in here that the best way for a shudra to advance is to be in the company of those who are more advanced than he is. And that's where the, the idea of having servants, oddly enough, really has a spiritual basis. Because a higher consciousness family or household will take on the responsibility for helping people who are less evolved than they are begin to experience a higher vibration. The same is also true that it's good karma for an animal to live with humans because it experiences a higher vibration than it would just meet among its own kind. And even a tiger in a zoo may be a lot better off than one who has the freedom just to hunt and eat and hunt and eat and eventually be eaten. You know, because at least in the zoo, he's in constant association with human consciousness. You know, it sort of turns a lot of ideas on their head, doesn't it? We think, oh, wouldn't it be wonderful if he can run free? Well, the animal's life is terribly insecure. And it's just all about... Eat, well, you know, being chased or chasing. That's what someone said. <laughs> Just one or the other. Someone was talking once about rabbits and rabbits being at the absolute bottom of the food chain that everything eats a rabbit. <laughs> 
So a rabbit is never, that's why rabbits are so nervous, because there's just really never a moment when a rabbit is really safe from being consumed by something. <laughs> but you can see that that's not a very high level of awareness, and you would seek smallness in that reality. He said animals lack the self-awareness to be consciously in delusion. But they, they're sort of, as he calls it, a practice run for when they get an ego. <laughs> Which I thought was a charming way to put it. But what happens with the shudra is that eventually, through enough experience, a shudra may begin to discover the pleasure of working to get something for himself. You know, if a shudra happens to do a good job and he gets extra money, or he gets a weekend off, or he gets praised by the boss, or he gets to go out and buy a fancy car that he really likes, it may occur to him that a greater happiness than not putting out energy is putting out energy when I get something for myself. Now, it's far from the point of view of understanding that putting out energy is a satisfaction in its own, that being lazy and tamasic is just a dark level of consciousness and being active is much more beneficial. The first stage that moves us to action after the fear of punishment is the thought of what's in it for me. And so what's in it for me, for certain people, is a real progressive step. And even sometimes for ourselves. So the next step in the evolutionary progress is selfishness. And so sometimes you have to really encourage people to really think about what they're going to get. And you see, this is where the teaching is so subtle. And it's, it's really not about what's true for everyone, because if it's evolution, if it's a gradual evolution and expansion of consciousness, that self-evidently means that people are at different levels. And if you really want to help people, this is the absolute genius of Swami Kriyananda that I have observed over these years, is he has, well, he has a, a, a divine capacity to see the reality of an individual and understand what is, what, what, what is their next step. And, what, and not what is their ultimate destiny, but where are they standing and what can they actually do? And, and then just helping people just move toward whatever will be expansion for them. And so sometimes one has to accept in oneself, you know, that I'm not going to do this unless I can give myself a reward. I'm not going to do this unless I can cognize what the terrible consequences that will happen to me. I won't be able to do this just for the pleasure of doing it. But if I get started, something will happen. I can still vividly remember when I was about two or three years old. It's one of my earliest memories was when my mother wanted me to clean up my toy shelf. I've told some of you this story before. And I dumped the whole, I think, no, it was the opposite. I decided I would clean up my toy shelf. And from the perspective of memory, I think of that toy shelf as being like about 10 feet long and about 8 feet high. But I suspect it was a very small thing because I was a very small child. So being this kind of person, I just started with a lot of enthusiasm and dumped everything on the floor and then found the project uninteresting and abandoned it. And when my mother, who was careful to train me properly, observed that I had just created a mess and walked away from it, she took me and set me down in there and told me I had to put it all away. And I can remember just feeling this terrible sense of oppression at the magnitude of the task. And I sat there just kind of how, you know how children try to cry, even though they're not upset enough to really cry, but they want to cry in the hope that somebody will rescue them. So I just sat there kind of whining and trying to cry. And I can still see myself, and, and I must have been that big. And I would pick up one tiny little item, and I would hold it like this, and I would go, <laughs> and then I would just move it really slowly and, you know, just sort of, you know, collapse at the sheer effort of it. 
you know, just total shudra energy. Just the thought that everything is too much trouble and how, you know, what a, how, how awful it is that the world asked me to do these things and how can my mother be treating me so badly and this isn't my fault and, you know, just all of those things just in my little child brain. And then I simultaneously remember another voice saying, honey, just put the toys away. It's going to take you just, it's going to be so simple. Just do it, you know, the part of me that just knew that just put out energy, it'll be fine. I don't actually remember who won. I just remember the, the consciousness of the two choices, you know? And of course, I vividly remembered it because isn't that what we're so often? Because the material plane brings these subtle realities to a clear focus. So here we are with the task at hand and the sudra inclination says, oh, I just don't want to do this. This is too much trouble. I would be happier if I got to rest. Why don't I just turn on the television? Gee, a little more sleep would be needed. And another part parts of us think, but you're going to have to do it. Just get going. Once you get into it, you'll really enjoy it. Won't it be a satisfaction to have it done? And these, these, all these different evolutionary forces work with us. And some people have totally mastered certain um, downward-pulling energies. You know, there are people who are just... It never occurs to them not to do it. And it's not like they're suffering. They just recognize that it's a greater suffering to, to shrink from the challenge at hand than it is just to meet the challenge at hand. And so eventually, by sufficient punishment and su sufficient selfish reward, we begin to recognize that it is more satisfying to put out energy. And it's not really about the selfish rewards, it's that we begin to learn that, that putting out energy is a more expanded state of consciousness, and that more expanded state of consciousness is inherently satisfying. And so we start out doing it for what we can get, but then after a time we begin to understand that it's actually the action itself. It's the creative project. It's the excitement of getting this done. It's the thrill of seeing my ideas manifested. It's the sheer act of creativity that becomes much more satisfying. And then you stop working for the money. You stop working for the praise. You just start working for the joy of it. And at the higher level of Vaishya, <laughs> Swamiji says art and music begins to come in because people just want to be creative for that uh, for the joy of doing it and for the joy of, of making what they're making. And some, of course, art comes from many different levels as well. Um, let's see, there's a thought there I was trying to catch. Just a minute. Another aspect of the Shudra versus the Vaisha consciousness is the Shudra always feels that he is being acted upon by the universe. The Shudra feels completely helpless and has no idea of the law of karma or the cause and effect relationship. He could be drunk at work every day, but still when he gets fired, he'll feel the boss did him wrong. I mean, haven't you seen people like that? And there's no reasoning with them. There's no saying, but you were late 15 days in a row. You know, but you called in sick and you weren't sick at all. But you broke that machine because you were so negligent. And he'll still say, somebody did it to me. When we first moved into our um, community and we were sharing the complex with a uh, uh, the people who had already lived there. And it was a fairly low consciousness place. It just, it was very run down, and when we moved in, the consciousness was low. And it took time, you know, for those people to move on and for us to bring it to our home, to be our home. And David and I, in those first months, lived in uh, the building that's next to the driveway, Building 2. We had a small apartment there before ours was open and ready. And... Uh, Early one Saturday morning, 6.30 in the morning on Saturday, we were woken by somebody just right outside our window, just in the carports, just right across from where our bedroom window is. 
and he had his radio on full blast, and he was out there working on his car. I mean, that radio in that location at that time could be heard all over the complex. And I turned to David and I said, "Isn't it remarkable? Now this man's going to find that people are inconsiderate of his desires and needs, and it's going to be so bewildering to him why people don't really take his his reality into account. I'm sure he has no idea what he's doing. It's just he's fixing his car. He wants to turn on the radio." You know, it's just the awareness just isn't there of any kind of cause and effect. It's the world, and then the world will treat him badly, and he'll feel very abused. So the vaisha, the first thing that happens when the shudra begins to wake up into being a vaisha, is the shudra begins to understand: by my actions, I can influence my fate. If I work hard, I'll get more money. If I get more money, I can have a better house. If I have a better house, I can put a fence up around that house. I can have more good food. I can then I can send my kids to a better school, and I'll, I'll get the the woman I want to marry because I'll be so rich she'll want to marry me. And you know, just I can get a facelift. I can get my hair dyed. You know, just. But the the thought behind it is I can control the world around me. And there's this other thought form, which is instead of being a victim, now I'm in charge. And so, part of what the whole vaisha level is is this thought that I can actually be master of what's going on. There's not yet any thought that there's anybody bigger than me. It's just all about faith in me, which, of course, you see is a necessary stage, because if we think of ourselves only as victims, there's nothing expansive about that. We have to get to the point where we recognize that our willpower and our action influences our destiny. We need to be able to manifest. In other words. But the thought is still that if I can control that, where does my happiness come from? My happiness comes from getting that world in order. And there's also in the Vaisha consciousness this little bit of a thought that everything is a deal. I give you a little bit, you give me a little bit. And one of the real issues on the spiritual path that as we move from Vaisha to Kshatriya that we really have to overcome is we tend to carry that merchant consciousness, which is what the Vaisha is. You know, I'm perfectly willing to give you as long as you give back to me. We tend to carry that into too many areas of our life. We get, we tend to do our relationships as a trade, and we and then even when we become devotees, we we it lingers, and we tend to feel that we have some kind of a contract with God. As long as I'm doing my kriyas, then you protect me. And when God doesn't come through in the way that we we think He ought to come through, we feel betrayed by God. Because our our thinking is vaisha. I did my part. Why didn't you do yours? And our thinking is vaisha. I'm going to control this universe, and because I can make it behave, then I'm going to be happy. And this is the fatal flaw to a certain kind of guidance about manifestation, which is even though it can work,、uh, you know, sooner or later, it's it, it's not going to take you beyond a certain point because your Your karma to control this world、um, is, has limits to it, because the ego is not in charge of creation. There's a power greater than the ego that's manifesting this world. But the material plane brings these issues into a clear focus, and so we get to practice and try and try and try until it begins to occur to us: number one, that it's tiring to try to control the world all around us, and secondly, that it doesn't work. And the more we put out positive and creative energy, even if we're doing it for self-aggrandizement, we begin to experience that it's really more fun to be engaged. It's really more fun to be energetic, and we begin to focus less on the external. And then all of a sudden, we begin to focus on our own inner experience. 
And we also begin to realize naturally that if we take others' happiness into account and use our energy not only to take care of ourselves but also to take care of others, that that begins to harmonize something much deeper within us because we're moving closer to divine truth. You see, we're moving back from the grossest level of material manifestation and we're beginning to recognize that there's a certain interconnectedness here. And the more we experience of that interconnectedness, the more we're living in our true reality. We're moving towards Satchitananda. And so that's how Vaishyas gradually become Kshatriyas. It's from their own experience that you can't control the world and avoid pain that way, that the only thing you have mastery of is your own self. And that same concept of control shifts from trying to dominate the world outside of you to try to influence your own inner reality. And that's why the Kshatriya is called the soldier, the warrior, or the king. Because the battle that the Kshatriya begins to get engage in is the battle of Kurukshetra. The next chapter we read is the symbolism of the Bhagavad Gita, which is we really begin to do battle with the only enemy there is, which is not whether or not those tenants pay their rent or that insurance company keeps his bargain. It's the inner enemies of insecurity and fear and selfishness and a habit of unhappiness and expectation and attachment. And we begin, the Kshatriya, the soldier, begins to, to, to realize that the only place that pain or suffering comes from is inside and that I really need to begin to do battle there. And also the Kshatriya begins to embrace the understanding that selfless giving is really where my happiness comes from. It's not about what I get back. It's entirely and only about what I give. In other words, the self-definition as a solitary ego becomes eroded by actual experience. You know, and that's why you know, people have children. Often the first time a person really understands the joy of selfless giving is when they become a parent. And, you know, many people will say, I never knew anything about love until my children were born. Because, because the material plane brings these issues into clear focus. I mean, sooner or later, a person appreciates that what the joy of that was not having a son or a daughter. The joy of that was that because there was a child there, all of a sudden I was willing to forego my selfish preoccupations and that the real joy was in overcoming myself. You see? But we do these things again and again and again and again because even though it's clearly manifested there, it's not clear to us because our habit, habit of having uh, lived in our desires and our, of having taken the world in, f for a self-evident reality and not understood what was behind it. These are vrittis in the spine and it takes a long time to overcome them. And then finally beyond the kshatriya level, what comes next is the... And another aspect of kshatriya which Swami emphasizes in here, which I loved, is that kshatriyas become executive types. You know, kshatriya is capable of making decisions and managing things and m making the world work. And kshatriyas like to make the world work, even if they're not making it selfishly work. They, that's why kshatriyas are leaders. They like to organize things. And Swamiji was commenting, we'll all go on for just a moment, but he was saying in a, in a kshatriya-dominated world, he said the highest value is to make things work, to make things be efficient. And where we advance from the kshatriya level is that we gradually realize that the energy 
flowing through us, we become more and more aware of the inner realities and, and our, our, our sense of satisfaction and happiness as we begin to win the battle of Kurukshetra becomes more and more attuned simply to the pure energy. And also the heart in its awareness begins to open up to the divine realities. And those divine realities finally put us in touch with the spirit level and that's when our thoughts begin to move away from the world altogether. And we become interested in being in harmony with God. And that's when you move into the Brahmin priest level. Now, Swami describes interestingly how Kali Yuga happens, that that Brahmin level becomes more and more, um, less and less distinct. And he also talks about how over time, as the age descended, and these... Um, states of spiritual evolution began to be merely outward identities that people held on to, that naturally people wanted to keep their privileged position. So, so being a Brahmin became hereditary instead of something that you actually were because that was your consciousness. And of course, as soon as being a, a Brahmin became hereditary, many individuals claimed that caste who didn't have that consciousness. And if a Brahmin is a Brahmin only in birth, but not in actual consciousness, naturally, people are going to have less respect for them. And Swami just sort of talks about as the caste system hardened into a social system, and the Brahmins especially became less worthy of the veneration that they were supposed to have, he said all of the energy began to shift more to the Kshatriyas and to the Vaishyas. And then pretty soon, as he put it, we have Kali Yuga which is exactly what we have now, where what we worship is the ability to generate money, the capacity to go out and get yours. You know, we admire, we teach, people are always self-affirming and going out, and we consider it a tremendous value to be able to demand from the world what you want to set your boundaries and set your priorities, and you see at a certain level going up, that's a good thing to do. But to have a whole culture that values that above all things or the executive ability of the kshatriya to just get everything organized and make it happen. And, and the Brahmin, the whole idea that there's this even finer and more desirable dimension of just simple attunement to the divine. You see, it's not respected anywhere in, our, in the Western side. And in fact, the executives are always a little annoyed by people who have their heads in the clouds. You see? But what's happening, what's trying to happen now, is we're trying to create a true Brahmin ca caste again. You know, by, by drawing individuals from the Kshatriya level primarily more into using the, all, the, all that that they've developed as an instrument of the divine. And not merely as an end in itself to get everything organized. But it's, a long, it's going to be a long battle. Swamiji talked about how, you know, even the, the ministers, even a, a generation ago, being a minister was a highly respected profession. And now you, you can see that it's all, it's all been marginalized. It, just, it doesn't stand anywhere in, uh, in the American psyche that to devote yourself to divine things is in any way really admirable. It's a little odd. And a kshatriya who has the refinement to, to understand that that's his next step may even be a little embarrassed by having it thrust in his face and he'll try to push it away. But it's, it's the necessity, and this is really what our job in this world is, is to gradually, by a very practical and, and very deep and clear 
commitment to that level of understanding gradually raise um, that quality again to a level where it should be genuinely respected. Does that make sense? Okay, let's take a little bit of a break. Okay. Um, during uh, Someone raised the, the point that even though I was talking about Brahmins not being well respected, that on the other hand, at this time and place, you see a dramatic increase of interest and commitment and respect for spirituality. You, it's the, um, the fact of this being ascending Dwapara Yuga, um, there's a belief in India, which we don't, we're just not at all engaged in this because in our, on our side we learned about this through Sri Yukteswar, but Sri Yukteswar actually was going against tradition when he declared that Dwapara Yuga started, has started because during Kali Yuga an aberration set in in the calculations and it is the traditional belief there that Kali Yuga, we're in the depths of it and it's going to go on for hundreds of thousands of years more. Sri Yukteswar said that's a false tradition and declared what we teach and what we all understand. But you see, whether or not it's an ascending or descending age strongly influences how we respond to the society around us. Because if it were, in fact, and in fact there was another um, Indian guru who had a big ashram in America, and he did not, you know, he was just going along with the tradition, and his belief that it was that it was Kali Yuga descending still, and so from his point of view, and therefore from the point of view of all his devotees, there was no real reason to try to establish anything to uplift society as a whole. And the, the necessity to do any public work, what would be the point? Because, the, you know, it was just a question the barbarians were going to be in charge for so much longer that it would all be obliterated. Whereas Yogananda's perspective, inspired by Sri Yukteswar, is that we're building, we're, we're on an ascending um, curve, and that what we put in place now will gradually be more and more appreciated rather than wiped out. When it was Kali Yuga descending, the, the lifestyle of St. Anthony of the desert was what people did. They just washed their hands of the whole things, and, and they just went out and lived completely separated from society as a whole because the barbarians were just in charge. And, there, and the only thing you could do would be, was to pull back from it all and just create a little vortex separately. But now what's happening is that inclination to be separate, and as manifested by the fact that all the traditional monasteries are having a terrible time drawing in people in monasteries that used to be filled with young people. Um, monasteries are primarily Catholic in this country, but it's true in all the cultures that have a monastic tradition, um, especially in, in the West, in America and so on. That, I mean, well, the reason we own this church is because there's a shortage of, of priests in the Catholic system. And if you look around now, you realize that a great many of the priests are brought from the developing world from their Latin American, their Vietnamese, their Chinese, because the people in, in this culture are not going toward the monastic life. They're going into society, not out of it. Because instinctively, there's this, uh, this divine wave that's moving people that realizes now is the time when we can, we can lift society and spiritualize it because it's, it's Dwapara Yuga ascending. And it's also important to realize that there's a certain cynicism that sets in in all of us about organizations in general. Swamiji talks here about the institutional religion is, is a shudra manifestation of spiritual practice because it takes away from people the necessity to think for themselves. And, and they're perfectly, many people are perfectly happy to have that. I, I was amazed, and I have to, I'll just have to say this right out loud, when we were in the conflict with SRF and 
at a certain point when they were suing us and they were keeping what they were doing a secret from their members, we took direct action and we went to their convocation in Los Angeles and we passed out information and we, we, held, we held signs outside their convocation. And, I mean, we just, we, we pulled the veil of secrecy down and it was a very good thing to have done. And, uh, but it was interesting to me because our, our absolute resolution is that we would not fight with anyone that we would only talk to people who were interested in talking to them, and we would only talk to them as long as they were receptive. If it turned into any kind of effort to persuade, we would just gracefully withdraw. And I remember more than one conversation I had with a person who calls themselves a disciple of Master, practices Kriya. I say, um, uh, you know, this is what is being done with your money in your name. And the answer was, well, if those who are in charge think this is what we should do, that's fine. I said, well, don't you think that you have some need to engage in the rightness or wrongness of this? No. <laughs> no. And I just said, well, at Ananda, we're trained differently. And, and going back and seeing this, I see, well, that's an institutional religion. It's very secure. This is what I believe. This is the result of what I believe. You know, I'm going to be safe because I'm doing these things. And it's a shudra way to be a devotee. It's better than not being a devotee, but it's not as good as really taking personal responsibility for your own destiny. Part of taking responsibility, of course, is to give respect where respect is due. But nonetheless, it's still a matter of one's own conscience. That's how Swami puts it here. And you know, he's very passionate on that point. He's lived through it in this incarnation. He's very passionate about that. Don't think that you can ab abdicate responsibility and, have, and still be saved. You know, it's your free will. And he talks in there about free will. It's a sacred responsibility. But because this is an ascending age, there is also this increasing understanding of this new reality. But it's, a, it's just such a mixed bag. And, and it will probably, all the masters tell us, have a huge implosion. Because you see the forces. You see the forces of individual responsibility and greater enlightenment coming against the Shudra or Kali Yuga forces of fixed form and, and right or wrong regardless of your own opinion. And uh, that's what's going to cause it eventually. The other thing you see, as I was starting to talk about earlier, but I never actually finished the thought, is once the idea that there is any progressive evolution of individual consciousness has been abandoned, which it's essentially been abandoned by our culture, it completely opens the door to the kind of unbelievable greed and disregard for the welfare of others that has just become characteristic of our age. Yogananda says in very simple words, there will be a terrible economic purging and it's being caused by greed. Just bimbo, being just like bimbo, just like that. That's just all there is to it. And that greed is... Um, I heard Daniel Brinkley talk about it in terms of the medical system. He says it even extends to the, um, you know, to the way we deal with death. And he made the statement, which I, I have no way of disputing or verifying, but he said that the crisis of, of insurance in this country is caused by the fact, he said, 70% of every medical dollar is spent in the last six months of people's lives to extend their life by an average of uh, 14 days. And he called it life greed. That, that people are just greedy for everything regarding themselves and don't have any understanding of this greater flow. 
Now, Swamiji writes at the end of this book, I mean, at the end of the chapters today, he's talking about the symbolism of the Bhagavad Gita. And he, he takes the time to really emphasize that because the entire Hindu, you know, the primary scripture of India and the, the Hindu tradition is the Bhagavad Gita. And the Bhagavad Gita is the scripture of the way of awakening. That's why Yogananda wrote such an extensive commentary. And that's why since this book was published, so Swami doesn't refer to his own book, he published, of course, the essence of the Bhagavad Gita, which is the study that some of us have been doing for the last couple of years. But that scripture was written almost at exactly the same point we are now, at the, at the transition point between Kali and Dwapara, except it was Dwapara, Kali Yuga going down, and now it's Dwapara ascending. But from the point of view of the evolutionary state of the earth, it's, it's a little bit different because the memories of Dwapara descending are all of that enlightened energy and all of that enlightened habit is still with you. Whereas here, all of our memories are all about Kali Yuga where everything that you create just gets destroyed and the barbarians come in and burn the libraries. And, you know, it's just like um, and this gradually hardening of, of, materi- of the material world instead of a gradual lightening of it. Don't misunderstand. Yogananda said that war continues all the way into Treta Yuga. And I, when, he's, when I heard that, I realized it's very different than we think. Because if people can still go to war, you can see that consciousness is still very confused. But war, he, in fact, he said, Dwapara Yuga is one of the most insecure ages you can be in because consciousness has not refined to the point where in, the individuals are safe and technology has advanced to the point where the reach of um, bullies can be enormous. However, um, Master speaks of, in, in higher ages, wars are more contained. Remember how there used to be so many rules of engagement? And even in the Bhagavad Gita, in the Battle of Kurukshetra, as an external battle, there were all these rules of engagement. Whereas, gradually, over the history even that we can point to, the uh, warfare became more and more malicious, and civilians were involved. I mean, even, I mean, America was part of it. We dropped the, the bomb on the Japanese city and just wiped out all those people who were not, you know, arms-bearing soldiers. We attacked the civilians in order to bring the country to the peace table, but in a higher age, such a thing would have been unconscionable. But in this age, and you know, I'm not going to get into a discussion, but it's an interesting discussion about whether or not that was justified, and there's a lot of things that say that it was. Because just like Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita, you know, we're in, in the Kali Yuga cycle, and we're still, in an, we're still influenced by Kali Yuga, um, you just have to, you have to do things that you wouldn't have to do otherwise because the level of everything is too gross for subtle actions, for purely subtle actions externally, not internally. Master himself defines ahimsa as not, the, not never taking an action that would cause harm to someone, but having no inner desire to harm anyone. Because in Autobiography of a Yogi, that story is discussed where Master raises his hand to hit the mosquito, and Master says, you already have the desire to crush him, you might as well finish it. You know, that's sort of, and Jesus called it sinning in your heart. In other words, it's the purity of your consciousness that matters. And then sometimes a necessity will require that you take actions, but if your consciousness is pure, that's what matters. Master incarnated is Arjuna, and he was a warrior. And Swami is talking here about the symbology of the Bhagavad Gita, that we have to understand that, and what I was starting to say is that it was written at the same period of time, 
that Krishna and Arjuna were, were manifestation of the same line of gurus, that Krishna was Babaji and Arjuna was master. So that whole scripture and that whole conversation between the two of them is somehow very profoundly connected to this path of self-realization at this point, in which Babaji has sent Arjuna master, um, Krishna Babaji has sent Arjuna Yogananda back to essentially bring the same message at, in, from a different angle this time. So that same scripture has been completely reinterpreted through Master and through Swamiji because, as Swamiji writes, the power of it and the fundamental truth of it is undiminished by time, which is really, when you stop and reflect about it, quite astonishing, isn't it? Now just think what that does to our ideas about time, space, and history. That all these hundreds and thousands of years ago, Krishna and Arjuna, who actually lived, and there was actually an historical battle, and the cousins were actually fighting over the kingdom, but it became a symbolic discussion of the inner battle that a kshatriya faces. Arjuna represents the pure kshatriya consciousness, you know, becoming a Brahmin, but doing battle. And he quails, he, he hesitates. He says to his guru Krishna, I don't want to do this fight. And then the whole Bhagavad Gita is explaining to, to Arjuna why you must. And this, this grasping this concept that the spiritual path is a fight unto the death is, is not necessarily popular. People want to just think that we can just sort of float back into our divine uh, state again. And people talk a lot, love to talk about how we're all one and it's all infinite. And, but, but you see people who just kind of talk in this airy-fairy way and scold you when you try to speak of the hard realities of life. Everything is just perfect, you know. You don't actually feel from them necessarily the kind of uh, world-conquering spirit that actually inspires um, change in you. And you certainly don't feel the kind of magnetism that actually creates change in us. You know, where, where that magnetism comes from are those who grasp this uh, essential fact that we are kshatriyas trying to become Brahmins and the kshatriya is a warrior. And the whole Bhagavad Gita is that story of how the two sides of our own nature have to battle to the death. And even though Arjuna thinks it's a very unpleasant prospect and he doesn't want to do it, God condones it. God insists upon it in the form of Krishna. In fact, Krishna guides his chariot through the battlefield and tells him how to fight and who to fight and who to kill. And then there's the whole discussion to make it much more clear that it's only because of our limited concept of reality as being defined by these fixed forms that we even hesitate and imagine that anything is destroyed. And he speaks of it directly, that the soldier who kills another soldier in honorable warfare, as Krishna describes it, you see the body fall, but I see the soul rise. So you think that the warrior has been slain, and I see that the, the warrior has been freed, just freed from that form to go back to the astral world to be remanifested again, and it's all about karma and reincarnation. But symbolically what he's also saying is, when we do battle with our own inclinations, no matter how attractive those desires look to us, no matter how much we feel that we're defined by those things and how could we ever get along without them and this is who I am, this makes me who I am, life without X, Y, or Z would be so grim and so unattractive. Krishna assures us if you, if you slay the form, 
If you overcome that uh, wrong desire, that energy does not, is not killed, it's liberated. And it rises. And he's talking very specifically about the inner experience we have as we neutralize these vortices of wrong desires, wrong because they are not ultimately fulfilling. That's what makes them wrong. They're not wrong in the sense that, that God dislikes us for them. They're wrong because they will not bring us what we think they'll bring us. Nobody can tell us that. But once we begin to see it for ourselves, then the second stage is to have the courage to, to affix your will to the path and simply stick with it. You know, perseverance is an extraordinary quality in spiritual life. At the perspective I have now of 40 years, which is just an amazing number of years, because time is a dream and it just goes into nothing, I just see that really nothing mattered, really, except the fact of just persevering with the best energy that I could put forth. You know, all the ups and downs that seemed so incredible when they were happening, all the little personal dramas, all the successes and failures, all the shames and triumphs, you know, none of it. It just all just washes away. And the only thing that remains is the commitment to the battle. Just the commitment to being a kshatriya, trying to become a Brahmin, and just the willingness, no matter what happens, to just pick yourself up and struggle one more day. And the, the other side of it is the sort of ever-expanding sense of freedom that comes. And that's the fabulous thing about this path, is that it isn't, as Swamiji describes, that just nothing good happens until you reach the top of the mountain. It's that the closer we move towards Satchitananda, the more that Satchitananda begins to uh, reach out to embrace us. We have faith in something that is a conscious force that can actually give back to us. You see? And it's, it's not about belief. It's about the willingness to put out the energy, to conduct the experiment, so you can make your decisions by the results. And if one perseveres and conducts the right experiment, no matter how crummy you think you're doing it, if you don't quit, that's why Master said that marvelous phrase, to those who persevere to the end, he said, at the time of death, I or one of the other masters will be there to greet them and take them to the other side. That is an astonishing promise. He didn't say to those who triumphantly never, you know, fail. He said, those who persevere to the end. There's very deep truth in that. You know, once you know what your duty is, and in the Bhagavad Gita it talks about it at length, better to die doing your own dharma than to succeed at someone else's. Better to die you know, seemingly a failure without giving up our spiritual commitment and our spiritual ideals. Persevere to the end without regard for anything else. Where there is dharma, there is victory. And that's, you know, we talked, and we, we mentioned the sort of instability of our times and the, the increasing question mark as to where our culture and where our society, where our economy is going. It, 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 nobody can answer those questions. What we can answer is we are always and always have been on the personal battlefield of Kurukshetra. And every day, we have to attend to our consciousness. You know, am I attuned to the spirit? Am I acting as best I can in harmony with the light? Am I striving uh, with all my will to overcome my egoic inclinations and rise to the level of spirit? 
just day after day after day. And, you know, this life just goes by so fast. And all you have at the end of it is that accumulated force of how you have lived every day. I so often quote, and I will quote it here at the end because it's one of the most astonishing and important phrases that the Master ever spoke. Take care of the minutes and the incarnations will take care of themselves. We are in a constant battle between our inclination to uh, favor the ego and our inclination to favor the spirit. And minute by minute, the, the, the trajectory is set. And as much as we can, turn toward the spirit. And if we fail in that as soon as possible, turn away again. Just do it minute by minute and the incarnations will take care of themselves. So, that's my message for this evening. So, bless you all.